You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. So, Rhea, you're busy adventuring every single day, it looks, it, it appears to me. I just went before this interview, I went back and I scrolled through your Instagram to yeah. see like all the adventuring you've been doing. And so I feel like we're we're gouging into that time of your day by you talking to actually us. it's it's disgusting and it's raining outside and i need you need a break every now and then so this is perfect <laughs> Rhea, i accidentally double booked today i had a meeting with a guy that i work with during this time and so i messaged him and said hey i'm so sorry and he said priorities losing out to Rhea is all right for me oh. but tell her to calm down and take an off day sometimes <laughs> i actually do um and I have a coach that only asks me to do it once a month, so I love it. <laughs> but that, that's the perception of, of you out there is that all you do is attack and hammer and attack and hammer every waking <laughs> moment of your life. Well, maybe, but I take it easy, like exercise-wise sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you have gotten a handle on that throughout the years. I have wisened up <laughs> a little. Yeah, you don't seem totally convinced. <laughs> See, that's the problem when you have so many passions like you do is that there's always something that you want to go out and do, right? So like an off day for you might not look like an off day for everybody else. I'm working in a different muscle group and I'm working it easy. <laughs> it's also the downside of living in a fantastic place. Yeah. Living in the mountains is a double-edged sword. It is. There's always something that is really, really enticing. Where for us, we have to drive to find something cool to run on. And so it's really easy to take down days. Yeah. But when your backyard is a playground, it's difficult. And when everybody around you is doing things all the time. <laughs> yeah, you don't have an inactive circle, I've noticed. Like I have people in my life who do very different things than I do with their free time, we will call it. <laughs> You know, and I feel like everybody in your life is living your life. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have a few friends that are injured and are not doing anything in the moment. but <laughs> That doesn't count. <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> I saw a lot of butt cracks on Instagram when I was scrolling. Did you get through. it? There was a sign that said white crack. And so we just couldn't resist. <laughs> I, I was scrolling so quickly to get caught up that I didn't see yeah. the sign. That yeah, there was sense. a sign. So it was asking for it. Um, so we had to do it. So you really have matured throughout the years. <laughs> I have. <laughs> About the, to the extent I'm ever gonna probably. So this is it. This is me. <laughs> Very first conversation we ever had was in the parking lot before a race. And, and this was it. It was bubbly, smiley. First conversation we ever had. And now here we're probably, I don't know, six years later, just yeah. still, still same person. <laughs> so, so how old are you, Rhea? I'm 29. I'm going to be 29. actually, I'm going to be 30 in a month. Oof. It's crazy because it feels like you've been in the, in this world forever. Mm -hmm. You're just one of the stalwarts of this endurance world. And yet you're not even 30 yet. I feel like I'm already 30. <laughs> I feel like to me, it seems like I'm old. <laughs> you know what's scary about that though, is in your realm, in your pursuits of ultra 
uh, endeavors, you got a lot of time left. To... I know it's it's exciting. Rhea, I was taking one of my down days yesterday, and I do what I do during all my down days. I turned on old races, and I was in the mood for West Virginia, and I was looking for 2018 West Virginia recap, or and, and I just couldn't find it anywhere. But 2017 started auto playing. Like, oh, sure, why not? I'm already on the treadmill. I'm not going to stop it. And I had forgotten about the show you put on in 2017. Yeah. Oh, boy. I don't know if you've watched it recently. Well, I don't rewatch them every week like you're, you're <laughs> but I have seen it. Your running was phenomenal. Sometimes we forget that you're not just the ultra person. You You were so strong and aggressive. It was a great reminder. And I didn't do it intentionally because I, I wasn't even looking for that race. But one day before doing this interview, it was a fantastic reminder of both ends <laughs> of the spectrum you can cover in this sport. Yeah, um, I feel like that was back when, you know, when I came into the sport, I was training by going fast and hard all the time. And mm -hmm. part of that was because I just didn't know any better. And the other part was because I had an hour a day. So the faster I ran, the further I could get. So all of my runs were like six something minute mile pace, for like eight miles. Um, so I was fast, but it was, you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, you'll, you'll be fast for maybe a year, a year or two, and then you're going to plateau and not get any faster and probably get injured at some point too. Um, so those were back, back in those days. And then I feel like when I moved to Colorado, like you said, that the mountains can be a double edged sport, there was just all these mountains to explore. So I stopped running fast and I find like, I went from having an hour a day to having, you know, 12 hours a day. And mm -hmm. so I just put all my time into going far and going slow. And that made me able to go far, but I went slow. So, um, and then also just like, you know, when I did so much all the time, cause I had all that time and um, didn't want to know any better. <laughs> um, I just, I got injured and that also just slows you down because you can, you know, you can run through injury, but you can run through it very slow. And if you're very stubborn, you can run through injury for a very long time. And so that's basically, I feel like why I lost my speed. And um, I'm actually quite excited this year. I'm going to try some of the shorter distances again, because I do feel like I'm getting my speed back by um, training kind of like in between those two worlds. I'm not definitely yeah. pounding six minute miles anymore, um, but I'm also not running all day, every day, very slowly. So um, hopefully I, I have no idea. I haven't tested myself in a race, but I feel like some of my speed from those 2017 West Virginia this may be back. I would argue that the last time you definitely focused on the speed, your 2018 San Jose performance was probably your best U.S. National Series performance yet. You you smoked everybody. It wasn't even a race, Rhea. And that was a super. <laughs> I remember that one. So pretty much was 2018 the last time you pursued the, the need for speed, like with purpose? Yeah, um, I think... Basically, that year in the summer, I broke my metatarsal. I had a stress fracture, and that took me out um, for two years. I never, I healed it, but I never healed it fully. So I had like foot problems. My ankle was hurting. My foot was hurting basically all the time. And then 2019, I started training for Fiji, the adventure race. And in my mind, that justified doing all the volume in the world. Um, and I was like, well, I'll just, you know, I don't have to go fast there. So let's just train through pain. And my foot basically hurt from summer 2018 until the start line of Fiji 2019, September. 
Um, and then the Fiji race had like 24 hours of paddling at the start. So I was probably the longest stretch I've sat down in my life in a long time. And that kind of healed my foot. <laughs> I came out of that race <laughs> without, you know, injuries and then kind of smartened up after that. You were the only person in the history of Eco Challenge to heal up during the competition. <laughs> So <laughs> my foot was still kind of hurting on the first track and then it went away. Um, I don't know if it was all the painkillers I took or the fact that I actually was forced to sit down on a bike and on a paddle and not run for a few days. <laughs> how did you, you, how you did hear you, this craziness going on outside here? Yeah. yeah, what is that? There's some sort of emergency going on. There's sirens, there's emergency vehicles listen, going by listen, like crazy. I, I live in Minneapolis. I'm about... Ooh, five to eight miles from where everything took place in Brooklyn Center. Oh, yeah. So it's been nothing but sirens. We have curfews right now in the city. So oh, I wow. get a text alert every night saying you must be in your home by seven o'clock. It's uh, intense over here. So those sirens are like just background background for the last few days here. But I wanted to ask you, with your with your stress fracture in your tibia, you said, right? Uh, it was metatarsal. So oh, it was, it was your med oh, you didn't have it in your, yeah. your metatarsal. Okay, I've had two of those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> three of those um they're the worst it took me five months off of running to before i could take my first steps back um and it took you even longer than that huh well off of running it was probably two months um because it was like chicago spartan that i did last and then i wasn't back until utah um but it i it was too soon so i just kind of you know i really didn't want to be counted out of the u.s national series so i probably pushed too hard and pushed too soon and by that point i was so used to something hurting all the time that i was like whatever it's just another standard day um and i feel like you know like it was then hurting for a year um it probably wasn't broken for a year it just wasn't quite healed um and it kind of became manageable to the point where you know, I forgot how good it feels when you're not hurting and running. Um, so I just kind of dealt with it um, and, you know, kept on pushing through some stupid things. <laughs> no, I've been there. I, I, I fractured mine in like May or June of last year. And I think I, in the last month is the first time I woke up and didn't limp out of bed because of residual like infl inflammatory soreness. Yeah. Like it just lingers. You sit down on the computer for two hours and you get up to walk to get a snack and suddenly your foot hurts. Like it's just like wild yeah. how long it lingers. Yeah. Okay. I can relate to you on that. I was just curious. <laughs> Rhea, during this, um, and, and I do want to work our way back up to everything because I'm curious, I, I'm very interested to know about your training when you were all in on speed and then all in on endurance and how you're going to mesh the two together. Because I think that's the, that's the sweet spot is when people have experienced both sides, had some yeah. injuries, and then they use what they've learned to put together a holistic training plan. And I want to work up to that, but I want to go back first because in West Virginia, watching that, and I'm on the treadmill sweating away and you can't come running by. And I thought that is beautiful right there. That stride was yeah. just, it's what you draw up And Megita and Amelia were doing the commentary. And they both said what I was thinking. They said, oh, we have serious stride envy right now because it was just... <laughs> It was perfection. And we would be forgiven for thinking you had grown up doing nothing but running your entire life because you you looked physiologically like someone who was made to run. And yet that, as far as I'm aware, was not your upbringing. So I do want to go back, find out where your athletic journey started because yours is very, we say unique about a lot of people. Yeah. Nobody has your athletic story. So I do want to, I want to go back and start there and then progress back up to when running took over. Yeah, um, growing up, I was a gymnast. So really, the furthest I ran would be 25 yards on vault. 
Um, but actually, when I went back and like looked at my vault videos and stuff, my stride was like really great even for that. And I don't know if it was because, you know, you only had 25 yards, so you really had to maximize what you're doing or because I grew up doing things barefoot because, you know, gymnastics is barefoot. So every time we ran, every time we sprinted, it was all barefoot. So I don't know, maybe that drove my mechanics of running to be, um, you know, pretty efficient. Um, but I was also <clears throat> always, I think, pretty gifted for running <clears throat> when we did, you know, cross country in elementary school, I'd always win and, you know, thought nothing of it because gymnastics was my sport. Um, and then when I quit, um, I quit because of sort of like overtraining, but it was more in my head than in my body. Um, I just crashed too many times and had too many accidents. And I felt like my brain decided to protect my body because I wouldn't. And I lost all of my muscle memory overnight. Um, it was really bizarre. One day I was doing double pikes with, you know, two turns. And then the other day, I was standing and I couldn't figure out how to do a handstand. It was really like total erase. Um, and some of it hasn't come back. So, you know, I can go back to a trampoline um, place and I do like backward flips and forward flips, but anything that involves changing direction. So for example, you do like a cartwheel and then you'd go backwards. I can't do that. My brain like can like put those two things back together. Um, and so when I was forced to quit, I was very, very athletic because I went from training, you know, six days a week, four hours a day or more. Now I'm going to pause you because you're, you're just brushing over. Yeah. I want people to understand <laughs> how serious this was for you. First of all, where were you living and what age did you start training? Um, I lived in Slovenia and I started when I was six years old or five. Um, I was always doing handstands, so my mom put me in gymnastics. She actually put me in gymnastics and ballet at the same time, and the practices were at the same time, so I had to pick each week which one I'd go to, and I went to gymnastics once and never went back to ballet. Um, <laughs> so I started when I was six and um, went all the way until I was 17, and you know, it was one of those things I thought I was going to be doing for much longer anytime you see a gymnast make it past like 13 it's a gymnast <laughs> who takes it serious it's, yeah. it's a gymnast who takes it seriously it really is because you hear a lot of of young girls are you know i used to do gymnastics so when did you stop i was 12 i was 13 yeah. you make it all the way to 17 like this isn't just a by the way passion project anymore this is like potential like career at least short term correct yeah, it was it was my life. Um, I'd be doing homework on the bus ride home so that I could get enough sleep so I could get early to practice again. Um, nothing else really mattered. I didn't have any friends outside of the gym. My team was very small. It was just me and two other girls. And um, that was my network of people. And my coach kind of sort of raised me in the gym. And, you know, that was all I cared about. And when you ask little kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I've always wanted to be an Olympian in gymnastics. And um, I never thought that world was going to be taken away from me, which is why when I had to quit, it was pretty hard. And that year I was also, um, I actually, that accident, I don't even know if you can call it accident. Um, it happened, um, right before we were supposed to go to a training, to a, um, like qualification meet for Beijing Olympics. Um, and had I done the competition I did the week before at that qualification meet, there's a lot of would have, should have, could have. Um, I was actually there because they felt bad for me, so they let me go and spectate. Um, if I had done that performance a week later, I would have made it to the Olympics, um, which was just pretty hard. And so that was probably, that was the last time I stepped in the gym. I, after that, I decided um, I need a new life. <laughs>
<laughs> so you were on the Slovenian national gymnastics team. Yeah. And you were ready to qualify for Olympics. Yeah. Okay. Now we're, we're a gymnastics family. My family is. Okay. So my sister was um, competed at the world level for rhythmic gymnastics. When did you, so gymnastics goes level one through nine and then elite. At what age did you, did you move to the elite level? I was actually in gymnastics before that was implemented in Europe. Oh, really? So for us, it just went by ages. And if you weren't elite, you weren't really training. <laughs> um, <laughs> at least in like our club, I think there was a recreation like segment, but it was training at a different gym. And so um, basically I was on the national team from when I was, you know, 10 or 11 um, up until I quit. Um, there were just a few of us and we were all, you know, going to the meets and um, doing all the international um, meets probably like every other weekend we'd be driving in a car to Romania and <laughs> to to all the other places <laughs> so you grew up on national level competition from 10 yeah. through 17 yeah now both everyone I know who's at a high level gymnastics in the U.S. gets to the point where they finally make a national team or they go to the Olympic training center and then they get their European coach they import European coaches in order to teach <laughs> Americans how to be good at gymnastics. And it's very damaging for them. Yeah. Every outside of, I shouldn't say every, probably nine out of every 10 national or world level gymnasts that I personally know, um, not nine out of 10 of them have long-term psychological, physiological, and eating disorders as a result from it because the European system is so harsh by American standards. So as a 10-year-old entering the system that produces our harsh coaches, what was that like for you? Um, I was actually really lucky that the coach I had um, was actually very nice. So he, it was more of that I was in the same gym as some other not great coaches. And so, you know, you absorb everything that you hear. Um, and, um, you know, we didn't have to weigh ourselves, and we didn't have to ask for permission if we we're allowed to eat things, but other, other girls did. Um, and you know, we saw that and I was like, oh, well, they're not eating this. So I probably shouldn't either if I want to be as good as they are. Um, and so for me, like it ended up being self-driven, but I think that self-driven, um, came from hearing things that were around me, maybe not necessarily targeted at me. Um, but targeted at my friend, which was just the same. Um, and so, you know, I think I stopped eating desserts when I was seven or eight and didn't touch anything that had any sugar in it until I quit. Um, you know, I didn't eat dinners. I would eat lunch. And then for dinner, I would eat like a fruit snack or something like that. So I definitely didn't have healthy relationship with food. And that lasted until basically you know, COVID hit, um, it, it more from one form to another, but the fact that weight matters so much kind of stays with you probably your whole life. Um, it's really hard to break free of that when you're that little and always surrounded by that. And, um, you know, when I was like 10 or so, I was still, my friend and I, like after every practice, we'd stop at a bakery and get like a piece of bread and a dessert. And, um, we weren't as skinny as some other kids and, you know, we were let, it was known that we weren't and so when I quit and like lost a lot of weight I got a lot of compliments over that so it kind of like ingrains in your mind that you know being skinny is good and being you know very muscular and light is good which in some sort of sense like you know when you crash if you have less weight crashing in you yeah you're gonna like not injure yourself as hard but 
maybe we should focus on not crashing in the first place <laughs> and, you know, focusing on being strong and healthy. Do you feel like growing up that way with like such an intense training regimen, like as a, I mean, obviously Bracken, I assume when you were seven or 10 or 12, you weren't even remotely thinking about what you were putting in your mouth. If you were like me, it was McDonald's <laughs> yeah. every day for lunch. It was dessert after every dinner. Right. So do you feel like I've always wondered because there's such like a discipline that is associated with gymnasts, right? And it's an admiration and a respect like that I have one, because I can't do those things. And I admire that. And two, because it just requires such like focus. Do you feel like it took away from some of the things as like a kid, like a kid should be able to do and think, or were you still able to like balance that out? Like food aside? Um, I don't really think I had a very normal childhood. <laughs> um, at least not after I started gymnastics. Um, yeah. But, you know, that being said, like, you know, we still went on like family vacations and I was playing around the seaside for like two weeks in the winter. And then my gymnastics club took us like skiing in the in the winter. Um, I was on seaside in the summer. Um, so I did have I like I felt like I was lucky. I when I look back, I don't think I would have changed anything. And I think it's just part of my personality that I took things to extremes. Um and, you know, I was encouraged to do so. <laughs> but um, I know that when I look back, like, I probably if I had, you know, a healthier relationship with food and healthier relationship with sport, maybe I would not have been forced to quit um, when I did. But then maybe I would also never even have gotten there. Um, so, you know, I don't think, I think it gave me a lot. Uh, I learned a lot from it. And if you don't, push your limits sometimes you don't know where they are I found mine in gymnastics <laughs> in a very hard way um but my childhood definitely wasn't normal um you know I was in the gym for <laughs> basically every day I didn't do any like fun stuff that kids normally do but um I don't think I necessarily missed them I didn't it didn't feel like a sacrifice at the time it was just something I intrinsically really wanted to do my parents were never like you should be a gymnast you know they were like do what makes you happy and dad did in the moments um so yeah it was different gymnastics is like a snow globe once you enter into it and you are at an elite level that is your world and it's self-contained yeah. your friends are in the gym with you because you're there for seven to ten hours a day and so you basically eat sleep train eat sleep yeah. train and that's about it and you travel with them your vacations are with them and so it's self-contained and again from having witnessed it with family members it doesn't feel abnormal because that's your world, but it does not prepare you for stepping outside of the snow globe and seeing the rest of the world. It's a very harsh transition. Our yeah. sport of running doesn't get harsh until you reach college. And even though that's still destructive, if you have bad coaches and, and food becomes unhealthy or overtraining, you're closer to being an adult. Whereas gymnastics, you're in your prime before you, you know, puberty is delayed because of gymnastics. And so you're a child. Yeah. And then you step out and suddenly you realize I'm 17, 18. This is an adult world now, but I have none of that preparation to transition into it. And it makes for a very stark reality for a lot of people. And that, that several, that like first two to three years after is really, really difficult for people. Yeah. Um, I was, I was very lucky that my mom basically took time off work when my snowball shattered and she was with me when I tried to figure out what my life was going to be. Um, because I actually, I changed high schools cause I was in a sports high school and everybody had their own snow globes there. And so there was no room for making friends cause they would all just go to their own practice and do their own thing. So 
I changed high schools and then ultimately I had to basically change the continent I was in to be able to start fresh. Um, but I think moving to the United States was kind of an escape from, you know, not wanting to be an ex-gymnast anymore, but wanting to be something else. Well, what was that, you know, we as runners who run collegiately, a lot of times have a difficult time transitioning from collegiate running to like work life and then figuring out like their identity as an athlete or what they're doing. But like to go from all in to like, like, first of all, is that like some sort of phenomenon, like a neurological phenomenon that can happen? Have you looked into that? Like the whole, I lost control of my like proprioception and motor skill seemingly overnight. Have you dove into that like in depth and tried to make sense of it more or, or no? Yeah, I tried to figure it out and it's actually not so uncommon in gymnastics. A lot of careers end because of that, but it's not it's not talked about. Um, I think the official statement for me was I left because of an injury, which, yeah, sure, but it's an injury to the brain. Um, and mm. I feel like the thing that made the most sense to me that I read somewhere was that you learn your skills as one unity piece, even though there's like several steps in each skill that you learn. And then once you start crashing, your brain kicks in and it tries to break it down into smaller pieces and then piece it back together. But those small pieces don't exist because you didn't learn those connections as a each individual unit, but you learn it as a whole. And so as soon as you try and try and start to try and dissect it, th that doesn't exist. So that mo those motion patterns don't exist. And um, you just kind of switch from doing it as a one thing to trying to do it piecewise and you can't. Um, and that kind of made sense to me um, because mm. those like, big, long pieces I can't do. I can do like a backflip because that's, an easy thing that I've learned. Do a front flip, I can do something with a little bit of a turn, but the longer segments I can't I can't do. So like when you when you got to the mat that day, I'm just it's just very interesting. Like you sat there and were like, okay, body, like we're gonna go do this again. And it was like, were you like full of anxiety and couldn't get your brain to like make sense of it? Or was it like a blank so you were staring at nothing? Like what was it? Were, were there a million things going on in your head or was there nothing? And like how did that like, what did that feel like? I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to tell my muscles to do it. So I was standing on a mat trying to do a handstand, but I couldn't communicate to my body to invert. <laughs> um, so it was just kind of like, you know, like some people who, you know, are paralyzed, they try and lift your arm, but they can't. It's a different kind of paralysis. I tried to do a handstand, but I couldn't. Um, it just, nothing comes out of a signal to do it. <laughs> huh. Now, Rhea, this is bizarre. <laughs> I'm not trying to steal your shine, but I quit gymnastics for a small version of that very thing. Yeah. I quit at 13 because release moves got scary for me. It was time to start doing double backs, double pikes, uh, blind release moves. And mm -hmm. it was too scary for me. And suddenly overnight, I lost confidence. And it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. And, and Kirk, it's weird. Like if I told you go to do a round off back handspring back tuck right now, and I explained to you what that meant. You have to do a cartwheel with a half turn, land on two feet, and then somersault backwards. You'd have to think through each process and you could not do it on your first try. But when you get really good at gymnastics, you get to the point where it's not a thought. You feel it. Yeah, and then you just go on autopilot and you're thinking about like tucking tight through something or you're thinking about spotting your landing site, but in between nothing happens in your mind. But overnight, that pattern that she's talking about goes away. And now it's like you're back to day one thinking of what would I have to do with my hand just to get my body turned sideways? And you can't think 
while going fast enough to do it. That's exactly it. It's literally impossible. And I quit at 13 doing a fraction of what Rhea was doing in terms of her skill difficulty. But it's it's this crazy that you see it with baseball, with the yips. Have you heard of the yips? I haven't. Where suddenly a professional athlete can't throw the ball. It happens with catchers. They can throw down to second base. They can throw anywhere they want, but they can't throw back to the pitcher anymore. They throw in a land 20 feet in front of the pitcher or 15 feet to the side. And if they say throw all the way to the center fielder, they could hit him in the chest, but they can't throw it to the pitcher anymore, no matter what. And the more they think about it, the worse it gets. It's because yeah. it's a process that they've done on autopilot their whole life. And suddenly the autopilot switches off and they have no idea how to force that connection back. It makes sense to me. And I think, I think like ski jumping has similar problems. Um, mm -hmm. Pole vaulting has similar problems. And I feel like it's just an area that's so underexplored and, you know, there's no support for people who go through that. You're just kind of left wondering what, what happens and then you move on. How long did you fight it for? Like, how long did you like say, this is a problem. I'm going to keep trying. It's been going pretty badly for about a year. Um, it was all initiated by a crash on vault um, when there was like a kids were playing and there was a kid on the landing side um, and we crashed. And that's when it got me thinking about things too much. And for about a year, my practice looked like, okay, everybody in the gym stands still. Rhea's about to perform a vault. There has to be no peripheral movement. Um, so there was a lot of like things like that. I would train at odd hours so that there was nobody else in the gym. So I could, you know, not be distracted by things I saw, um, in my peripheral and, you know, who knows, like maybe I would have qualified for Olympics, but have actually never made it there because that was still, you know, a few months away after that. Um, and at some point my, my coach said like, you know, you're smart, you're very gifted. There's life outside the gym. Um, you should go do that. <laughs> and that was probably a pretty great advice. <laughs> so you, you say your snow globe shattered. What was that then? Because suddenly everything you knew was gone and your identity was now taken away. And it's not like the, the general athletic uh, decline where you either reach your ceiling or you get injured and you can't do it anymore. You had a mental hiccup pop, pop up that you couldn't beat. And so there's that bit of embarrassment or shame with it. So you you entered the real world abruptly and without yeah. the normal grace that you would assume with a retirement. So walk us through that. Yeah. Um, at the start, it kind of like stayed. Everybody was like, oh, be careful. Don't get fat. Like all those things. And I was like, I'd like want to train really hard. Where's another sport that can take like seven hours of my day every day? Um, I couldn't find one. Um, so I went to track um, to pole vaulting for a little while and you know I was I got really good at the start because I was still fast I was light I had the athletics for it but then slowly you know my missed childhood ice creams and chocolate bars and all of that caught up and um, I just kind of went the other way um, so I got I gained a lot of weight I gained 40 pounds in two weeks once <laughs> um, just because I was like I'm starting today the day with a bucket of ice cream and I'm doing nothing else um, and Re repeat that you said 40 pounds in two weeks yeah um i basically did nothing and probably ate eight thousand calories a day um <laughs> this, is in, this is in high school still you're still yeah. not done in high school. okay that was still in high school um and obviously i wasn't jumping very well pole vaulting after that um so then my coach put me in running because he figured i'd lose some weight if i would run a little bit more um but I just, my brain just wasn't in it. I couldn't practice. I would go out and party and get really drunk and, 
then you know start the next day with bucket of ice cream and pizza again um and but through all, all of that i actually did school really well um i kind of threw myself into academics and so i kind of went through you know what kids go when they're little i want to be a firefighter i want to be an astronaut <laughs> except i was like 19 and i was like i want to be an astronaut <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of like was searching for myself for a very long time. And um, I think I kind of went into the hardest thing I could do academically as a result of it, because I couldn't go into the hardest thing I could find sports-wise anymore. Um, and so when I made it to United States, I never really thought about what I wanted to be when, <laughs> when I grew up. Um, I just did the hardest thing. And so I think that's why I've kind of like threw myself into physics and astrophysics for my undergraduate and then you know more physics and phd not because that was something i was really passionate about but because that was hard and was taking up my time and that was great <laughs> so um i think it was really you know spartan races that kind of forced me to evaluate what i actually want from my life um and i think if i went back and studied something else i probably would have studied something different um but i have the skills from that and from gymnastics that I can now use. Um, so I don't really think it was like a mistake necessarily. So how did you, okay, so you kind of fell into poor, we'll call it lifestyle habits physically and with your nutrition when you were out of gymnastics. And yeah. I totally understand how that could happen. If you're deprived of something as a child and for so long, my goodness, I, I don't know if I probably would have done the exact same thing. <laughs> I don't know. I already kind of do sometimes, right? So like, so, you get done with this, you graduate high school, you're not an athlete at all, you're not even moving your body in any physical capacity no. anymore, correct? <laughs> yes. Your head's buried in books and ice cream. Yes. And then and then you find out about a program in the US to go to college. So so that started like you came to the States when you were like 18 or 19? Yeah, um, I actually wanted to go to gymnastics. Um, we were talking with Duke University. So in a way, when I quit gymnastics also, my college path was taken away from me, but I was, I really wanted to go anyway. So I was stubborn and I was like, I'll find a way to go to United States for college. Um, so I just got- What was your plan? Me. Were you gonna try to compete all around or just pick an event where you didn't have to do something scary? Um, well, that was kind of before I realized gymnastics was scary. Um, so I had okay. plans for my future, like three years out. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and so then I just went to international high school for the last two years in Slovenia, and then that that's how I made it out to um, Berkeley for my undergrad. Um, but yeah, um, that was kind of the journey. So where did you go to school then? I went to UC Berkeley for my undergrad and Stanford for my PhD, which I didn't finish, but I finished master's there. So. And were you were you like a scholarship student, or you came over? and just started from scratch with no real incentive other than to pursue something super hard academically. Yeah, I came over actually not knowing if I was gonna be able to stay um, because it's I didn't get a scholarship from UC Berkeley and my parents never really anticipated having to pay for my college, so there was no money saved on that front. But they had enough to put me through one semester um, and there was a Slovenian scholarship I applied for, but the college in Slovenia doesn't start until like October. Um, so I wouldn't know until October if I got it or not. So if I didn't, I would just come back in October because um, Berkeley started in August. Um, but I did get the scholarship. So in October, I realized I'd be able to stay. stay. So Slovenia paid for my undergrad education, um, covering tuition and like some of the other things. And then 
I worked as an undergraduate research researcher to offset some of the other costs and um, my mom helped as much as she could. So um, I actually made it through college without depth, which I think is pretty um, uncommon here, which in turn, you know, let me drop everything and become a professional athlete because I didn't have to worry about paying, paying that money back. Yeah, makes sense. So you, okay, so then from this point, you come here, you go to school. How long are you in the face in the books and the ice cream phase? Like how long did that last? When I, as soon as I moved to United States, it was kind of like a blank slate. Um, so nobody knew me as a gymnast anymore. So I didn't like, in a way, it was very easy to just like kind of decide what I wanted to do. And um, I decided to try running um, mainly because it was easy, time efficient in between all the homework I had to do. And I basically lived on trails. The dorm I was in, you walked out the door and there was a trail. And I was like, oh, this is convenient. And it seems like, you know, pretty nice to do. Um, and I wasn't very fast at the start. I could barely run 30 minutes, um, but I really liked it. I liked the trails, I liked the nature. And coming from Europe, you know, Golden Gate Bridge was always like something you see in the movies. And that trail took me to a viewpoint where you could see it. So it was kind of like every day I was like, oh, I'm like living this thing I never thought I would. Um, and I signed up for my first, I think it was a trail marathon. Um, I didn't quite go like the steps way. Um, and, of course not. Um, I was second. So I was like, whoa, I can actually run pretty fast. And that was after two years of consistent, you know, unstructured running, but I would run like 30 minutes a day, an hour a day, however much time I had. Um, and then I was like, oh, like it kind of brought back my competitive spirit from gymnastics and it made me realize maybe I could still be good at sports. Um, and I've lost a bunch of weight by that point. So moving was easier. Um, I would still binge it a lot and had all sorts of eating disorders, but I could, you know, make it through. <laughs> um, so yeah, so then I, you know, then I did the trail marathon. So I was like, well, I guess 50K is next. And then I ran 50 miles and um, then Spartan came along. Nobody was guiding you through this? No. <laughs> what do you think of that, Bragan? <laughs> I mean, for someone else, that would be strange. But for Rhea's background of drive yourself to the brink every day in training <laughs> from seven or from 10 through 17, Sure, jump in and go marathon 50K, 50 mile. I mean, <laughs> is that really that odd for her? I mean, if she was used to training seven hours a day, what's what's 60 to 90 minutes a day? It's bizarre, but it almost fits the rail. <laughs> <laughs> it pales in comparison to what preceded that. I actually finished my first 50 miler in eight and a half hours, which I'm not sure if I could do right now. <laughs> so um, I didn't look like a runner at all, um, but I think I just, I was always good at it. How long did it take you to, there's so many people. So Bracken and I both coach and as Ray and I were talking before, she coaches as well. So we can relate, but I have a number of athletes who are new to like the endurance realm. There might be 30 and they started running just recently and their, their eye has been caught by Spartan. Like, and they think it's so daunting to improve. Like some are starting on like a run walk program, right? Run a minute, walk a minute. Like yeah. let's start there. But to hear like Rhea Koble, 24-hour world champ, most vert in 24 hours, which I want to get to. <laughs> you don't know if you could run a half an hour straight when you started. I couldn't. My my calves would cramp. I still remember um, very much that pain. Um, I would run 15 minutes and then my ca my calves would basically be steel um, and my foot wouldn't move anymore. <laughs> um, so then I had to stop. Um, so it took, it took probably three years um, of consistent running 
to get to 50 miles, which I guess looking back is not that long. <laughs> no, it's not. But hear that, people. Rhea Coble was going out for 15, maybe 30-minute runs and had to stop. Yeah. Just look at what she's doing now. Just just keep that in the back of your head when you're feeling bad about yourself, okay? There's hope. So when you found when Spartan first came to town, A, why did you sign up for it? And B, what was your overall fitness and health like at that point? Um, but my first one I've done was actually in 2013, and there was a group one for it. And at the time, mm-hmm. I was doing this class at Berkeley that was like kind of like track and field conditioning with a bunch of friends. Um, so I was like, hey, guys, like, let's do this. It looks like really fun. Um, and it was an open heat and I was really annoyed that there were lines at obstacles and I was like, I'm trying to win, like make room for me. (laughs) And everybody was like, you're trying to win. What? This is an open heat. (laughs) But I I really liked it. Um, I actually finished the fastest of our group, um, with three other guys. Um, and, but that was it. Like, I didn't think of anything of it. I was like, oh, that was fun. Let's go back to homework now. Um, and then there was another one three years later, um, and my ex-husband actually convinced me to do elite. Um, I didn't want to do it because I didn't feel like I belonged in the elite. I like looked at everyone's six pack and I was like, well, I'm so unprepared. <laughs> what am I doing here? Um, and that was actually Monterey and it was the U.S. National Series race, which I didn't know what it was or that it was that. And I was in a cotton tank top and um, Asics. Jalkayano road running shoes and I couldn't understand how people who could like turn through those like you know slippery corners and not just like fall um later on I learned there's such thing as trail shoes that I didn't own um but actually those those shoes had surprisingly good grip on slippery walls because they had so much sole <laughs> and I ended I ended up in like I think fourth or fifth place there um and then I qualified for Tahoe and then somebody said Tahoe has a lot of elevation gain. And even back then I loved running hills. So I was like, well, I guess I should probably try for that. Um, and I had absolutely miserable time there. <laughs> I want to stop you first. Wait, so this was a U.S. national series in Monterey was your yeah. first? Yeah. And in your first elite race in Jelkeanos, <laughs> not, and the only race you'd done before was an open race with your friends. Yes. You take a top five. Yeah. <laughs> Dang it, Rhea. Well, um, I think I was just running really fast. And, you know, I didn't know who the big players were. Um, when I passed Rose, I didn't know who Rose was. So to me, it wasn't like, whoa, like I'm running way too fast. I shouldn't be up here because I didn't know who those people were. Um, so I just ran as, as fast as I could. And from gymnastics, you know, like you never forget how to swing. You never forget how to climb a rope. So I knew all those things. Um, I didn't make it through the rig um, and the bucket carry destroyed me, but everything else just kind of came naturally. And I was at that point, I was actually pretty fit um, because I was, I had been running consistently for like three years. I've already ran a 50 mile race. Um, I wasn't at the point yet where I was running so much that I was injured or overtrained. Um, And I was going to those group classes at the UC Berkeley that were working on strength and speed and stuff like that. So um, even though I never really had a coach, I had all these like training little bits um, came to me from like all the different spots. So um, I by no means was training for a Spartan race, but I was just training in a way that ended up being really good training for a Spartan race, especially a beast. That makes sense. So Tahoe, you decided I'm going to go to the world championship for my third race. Yes. <laughs> and you decided to run a bunch of hills and mountains for that. 
uh, yeah, well, as much as I could. Um, where I was was pretty hilly, so um, but I never trained at altitude or anything like that. And right. um, I still, I actually showed up in trail running shoes, but still in a cotton tank top. And I remember crying through that swim and then crying again when there was another swim and deciding this sucks and I'm never doing it again. And I, <laughs> I changed my mind pretty quickly. <laughs> was that 2017? Or 2016? 20, I think that was 2016. Yeah. A lot of our audience runs Spartan Race or runs obstacle course racing. So they understand what Tahoe is. But for those people who have tuned over from road running or, or the trails, Tahoe obviously is at elevation. It is the longest race on the circuit. And they choose it for the world championship every year up until this past year. And there is a, a lake swim at the top of the mountain at about, what, 10,000 feet? I think it's like 9,600, something like that. 9,600. I'll round up. 10,000 feet. <laughs> Usually so. <laughs> yeah. Every year, the debate is, is it warm enough that the medical team will allow us to enter the water? So the water is always under 50 degrees, uh, minimum, like 48. I mean, hot, the maximum I've seen is like, what, 48 degrees water? 44 is what I've seen, I thought. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it that high. Maybe after we cheered up. <laughs> Yeah, so it's very, very cold. You're at the, the highest point, second highest point of the race. It's totally exposed on the face of the mountain. You're above the tree line, so there is nothing up there. It's super windy. So you have to enter the, like, picture an ice bath, and then you have to swim in it, get out, and continue running. But everything you wear just holds on to water, and it clings to your body. So for someone who hasn't done this, didn't know about it, wore a cotton tank top for it, <laughs> It is a brutal, destructive body shutdown yeah. type of experience. That's to the point. How yeah. I, felt. I just want to make sure that everyone understands how terrible it is to come out of a, I don't know, two to three minute swim in an ice bath at 10,000 feet with 30 mile per hour winds and probably snowing and then have to race for another 90 minutes and try to avoid cramping and keep your body temperature up. It's very, very difficult. And if that's your third race you've ever done, you're set up for failure. <laughs> Yeah. And I, didn't you finish close to 10th? I was 7th. <laughs> I actually was always around 7th. I feel like I got better, but everybody else got better. And so, like, my relative goodness in that race kind of stayed the same. Um, my worst finish was actually last year or, like, two years ago. I feel like last year just didn't happen. Um, but that was because it was after Eco Challenge. So I probably should not have done it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I would say. So, okay, so continuing on your timeline, and then we have a bunch of stuff we want to ask you about specifically, but so you did that. Obviously, you got some attention. I believe that, didn't you end up on the, the pro team the yeah. following year? And to your credit, by the way, to come into like Monterey at a U.S. National Series race. Uh, now, Lindsay Webster wasn't quite the four. I mean, she was great. Not quite the four she is now. And Nicole Miracle, the same thing. She's really come to her own. But I would argue that the women's field, nobody get mad at me was deeper then than it is now on the U.S. National Series front. So it's just like, I don't know, it's more. Do you agree with that, Bracken, by the way? You're on, you're muted. Bracken's a professional. Put himself on mute. There was an airplane <laughs> flying by back and forth. <laughs> uh, I would say that, yes, the top five to seven was, uh, it was top heavy deep, if that yes. makes sense. Any one of the top seven could win, where nowadays there's probably three people who can win. Yeah. But I think it extends back further today than it maybe did. One through 15 is stronger now. One through five was stronger then. Yeah. Anyways, to build your credibility and just how quickly you jumped into things. So from that point, you 
you were on the pro team suddenly, and now you were Miss, you know, Rhea all in on something. <laughs> Is that right? Like, what did what yeah. made you come around after Tahoe, and how did that all happen? Um, strangely, in a way, as much as it sucked, I decided it was a pretty great sport, and it kind of filled that hole that I've been trying to fill from gymnastics because I haven't been able to find a sport that would consume me so much as gymnastics did and as much as I promised myself I would never do that again I really don't think I know how to live my life any differently and OCR in a way can take up as much time as you have because you know there's running you have to work on there's strength you have to work on there's skills you have to work on and there's always something to do um, and if you want you can take up four hours a day um, probably not smart but you can and I found that thing that I've been looking for for so long and so um, in a way, like having such a miserable time also, you know, opened up so much room for progress. So I was kind of hooked after I recovered, <laughs> after I warmed up. Um, I decided that's something I want to try really hard to do um, and be good at it. And so then I started doing more races and um, I wasn't really noticed for the Spartan Pro Team. So I just went up to Robert and I was like, hey, I want to be in the Pro Team. I think I do really well. Put me in a pro, put me in a pro team, and he was like, "Okay, well, let's go look at your results." And he's like, "Oh, I guess you did pretty well. Um, and you have an Instagram account with one post. <laughs> you can be on the pro team." So I made it on the pro team, um, basically by asking and being annoying about it. Um, and then for about a gotta year, gotta go after what you want. Gotta go after what you <laughs> yeah. want. I like that. Yeah. So for about a year, I was. Um, then actually, I graduated from my undergrad and started grad school and. Um, for you know, two or three years, I was doing both um, racing and doing the grad school. Um, but you know, everybody else, when they had free time, they would read a paper or two, and I would go run or um, <laughs> do a thing or two outside. And so, I just realized that my passion isn't in the lab. Um, and at the time, I was making about the same amount of money um, being a graduate student and racing. Um, so, you know, I didn't really think about the future prospect at all. I was like, at the moment, <laughs> running makes more sense. And um, I had this opportunity to, you know, go all in. And um, my PhD advisor, she actually was a really good cyclist. And so I was like, what would you do? Um, and she was like, well, at the rate you're working, <laughs> you're not really very close to finishing a PhD. Um, and you only have this one chance to be a pro athlete. So you can always come to school later if you want to. So I made that decision and I walked back and I told my ex, I knew we really need to find a place to live in Boulder because I <laughs> have to be out of here in a month. Um, so basically she told me like, I should probably leave by the end of the semester if I'm not planning to stay. Um, and so we packed our bags and moved to Boulder, Colorado. Um, and I figured I'd just wing it and make it work. We, we came here when it was one Fahrenheit and a blizzard. And <laughs> I was like, what did I do? Because <laughs> we moved from California. But I also, I waited until I finished my master's. So I had like some sort of degree that I finished um, from Stanford. So I didn't just like, you know, decide and like left, um, which kind of like made me feel better about my decision. Because I was like, well, I have a backup plan if this doesn't work out. I got to imagine a master's degree from Stanford probably is a, is a solid backup plan. <laughs> heaven forbid if anything ever goes awry. What yeah. is your degree in, by the way? Uh, material science and engineering. So Okay. Nothing I'm using at the moment, um, but possibly applicable to future. <laughs> what do you think about what do you think about the conversation of this when you're in school and you're training at such a high level, 
but you only have so much time, right? Free. You, you don't have endless time. Let's say like maybe you have a little more now to train. So do you ever think there's any benefit versus cost of being a little too busy and keeping yourself from training too much by having other life distractions? Like how is that transition played out? Because I always wonder about that for myself, if I'm being honest. Yeah. How does that, how, do, how would you describe the two? And what do you think's better if there even is an answer? 2017 was my best OCR year. And that was the last year I was in grad school. Um, so there is some color, correlation for, especially for the type A personalities, um, between having a limited time and having a limited time to break ourselves, basically. <laughs> um, especially like I was without a coach, I was self-coached. I really didn't have that much background in, you know, sports physiology. Um, there was so much to learn that I just didn't know at the time. And so when I moved to Boulder, it's always been my dream to be able to have every day be a weekend day. And so I finally had that chance. And um, I definitely put exploration before performance um, for quite a while. And I was like, well, I'm running trails all the time. Like I'm probably improving. Um, but there's really just, there's not, it's not true. Like if you just run mountain trails all the time for, you know, slowly and for a very long time, you're going to get slower. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, so I feel like when you do have unlimited time, um, I think I just don't trust myself. So even though now I know a lot about <laughs> sports performance and how to train, I don't think I'll ever be without a coach um, just because I don't think I can coach myself. And so I think for me, it was very important that I realized that when I have unlimited time, I need somebody to limit it for me. <laughs> that's That's a really powerful takeaway that a lot of people in your situation need, which is the save me from myself crowd. Yeah. yeah. Or I will do, it's it's not the question. I mean, there's two types. They're the people that you have to convince them to get out the door. And then there's the people you have to convince not to leave the door sometimes. Yeah. And so, so what did you do? Did you partner with a running coach specifically, or did you partner with someone who had a, some OCR background? Um, so at first I worked with David Roche. Um, so that mm -hmm. was after, West Virginia. So you didn't mess around. You just went to a high level trail yes. endurance coach. <laughs> um, it was basically after 2019 where I felt like every single race I showed up to, I was either tired or injured at the start line. Um, and then I somehow made it through Eco Challenge Fiji. And I was like, okay, I need to change something about this because I'm clearly not good at listening to myself. Um, and so I started working with David Roche and he was really, really good um, for my running. Um, I like started feeling a lot better, but then the more I reached into other sports and the more I wanted to do also skiing and mountain biking and all of that, it stopped being cross training for me, but it became training. Um, and so at that point, um, it was at Spartan Games that I decided to start working with Josiah Mido, who's a multi-sport coach. So, um, and now like my workout workout is like sometimes on a bike, sometimes on, you know, running, depending on what race is coming up. Um, but it, I find like working with all of those sports together um, rather than just focusing on running and having else be having everything else be cross training is actually what makes me happy. And um, mm -hmm. I've haven't like this whole last year, I haven't had a single run when something hurt, which <laughs> I like still can't believe sometimes how good it can feel when, you're feeling good. And I think that's also why my speed is coming back. You don't have that perspective unless you've been very broken before. Exactly. Too. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So did was the shift to ultra? I mean, it sounds like you're going to do some shorter stuff this year and all that, which is awesome. I'm very curious about that. But was the shift to like the longer stuff by default or with by design? Like, um, were you like, shit, I'm, I can go forever, but now I'm slower, so this makes sense. Or was it, I have my eye on 24 hour events, so I can. That's why I'm training like I am. Yeah. Um. So 24 hour and longer events are my love. Um, I absolutely love those. I would do them even if I could win 5k races. Um, but I've also, I was able to win those in 2017 when I was also winning 5k races. So I feel like, um, even when I train more for speed, I'm just naturally good at the long stuff, um, without compromising, you know, my health and, um, you know, being slow because I'm overtrained and injured. Um, so I would do 24 hour events no matter what, um, the shift to just doing ultras, I think, was kind of a byproduct of both slowing down um, and like figuring that was the best way to train for 24 hours. Um, at the time, I thought that, but I just I wasn't competitive in short stuff anymore. And so when you're not competitive, it's not as fun. Um, but I was very competitive in ultras um, because there the punishment for being a little less fast just isn't as significant as doing a 5K, 10K race. Um, so I kind of gravitated towards it because it was something that I could still do um, without having to change my training, which would have been the smart thing at the time. Um, but yeah, I still love the ultras, but I think I'm going to do more of a healthy mix of short and long and not just long all the time. Reckon she said something in there that I bet you picked up on that I want to dive into. Well, my, my takeaway was that you talked a little earlier that you probably were a faster 50 miler five years ago than now. And I think that's one common piece that you notice among some of the high-end ultra athletes versus the, the every man in the crowd is that they keep real speed work in there and it pays off in a 50 yeah. mile distance when you really on paper wouldn't expect it to, but that generally as people sharpen and get back to their speed routes, their ultra racing improves. Yeah. That's what I've seen like in this past year too. <laughs> That's what I just picked up on too, Bracken. Great minds. You had said at the time, I thought that just going and running long and slow in the mountains was the best way to, to, to be an ultra runner. And then you said something to the effect of, but now I'm not sure if that's true. Yeah. So what, what have you been learning then about, about maybe your body and ultra running and what type of training might actually get a better response than just long slogs every day? Yeah. Um, I don't run more than 30 to 40 miles a week now. Um, and I'm what? actually faster than what I've been in a very long time. Um, but I feel other things with other, with other things. So I still train like, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week, which is pretty high volume. Um, but a lot of that is, you know, easy time on the bike, easy time on skis, easy, low impact activity. Um, and lots of easy recovery runs. Like I would never like it, it, two years ago, I'd never go out for a four mile run. And uh, those are probably the staple in my week. Um, and then 20 to 30 hours is elite world-class level Ironman training. Yeah. And I kind of train multi-sport and that's why it's so many hours because in any given week I would at least do running and biking. Um, in the winter, it's also skiing. So it's running, biking and skiing. Um, and, you know, like you want to have those big base building days and you want to have the speed days and um, you want to have strength in there. So it just ends up being 20 to 30 hours a week. Um, 30 hours is very uncommon. Th those are my like 
really big weeks when I'm when I was getting ready for the 24-hour um, ski world record attempt. I was doing a lot of the big weeks before that. Um, but normally it's about 20 hours a week. Um, but it's just so much variety that it doesn't break me down. Um, I generally every training session I feel good. I very rarely have a training session where I'm like, oh, I would really rather be in bed right now. <laughs> Which you know, when I was just running 90 miles a week, that was a lot. <laughs> well, I remember when I first got Strava and I started paying attention. I, I followed you on there, and you had this nice even graph across your weekly volume <laughs> yeah. that hovered right at 100 miles a week. Mm -hmm. It was like every week there was like not a down week. There wasn't an up week. It was just like 100 mile weeks across. You know how you can see like how far can you see like a, a window of like six or yeah. eight or 12 it's weeks. Like a flat line. <laughs> every single one. It was like a flat line of like that. So just to hear you say, well, I'm, your volume is high right now as far yeah. as you know cardiac output. But to hear you say I'm running 30 or 40 miles a week and I'm running faster and feel better than at 100 miles a week really touches my heart nicely because I'm on that minimal run more cross. I call it cross training still because I'm not a multi-sport athlete yeah. like you, but just really like hearing that, Rhea. <laughs> I really like doing it. <laughs> How would you describe, you, you touched on it, but I want to dive into it just a little further. So you described just run, run, run every day. And a lot of days you were feeling less than your best, which makes sense. It also looked like a lot of times you just kind of go out and run in like that zone three every day, right? You yeah. just go out and run same effort. Um, now you must have varied training efforts, very mod varied modalities, all of that. Like give us the, the biggest description difference between how you felt at hundred mile weeks and then how you feel now with all the varied training. Like how does your body feel difference wise and your ability to push? I think that's the key difference is back when I was doing 90 miles a week, I was always at this like in between steady states where I would be like, you know, running at like nine minute miles on trails, 10 minute miles on trails. And I never went slower because it didn't want to feel slow, but I also was never really able to push any faster. I wasn't doing any speed work or anything because I feel like intensity is really what puts so much stress on your body that you need that easy day after and I refused to take the easy day, therefore I couldn't do the hard day. Um, and I feel like now, you know, I have days when I like jogging at nine minute mile is what feels right that day. But because I jog nine minute miles that day, the next day I can push like intervals at like 550, 545, which, you know, were speeds I haven't seen in like three years. Um, and I think also the biggest difference now and before is um, just feeling like I want to go fast. Um, it's not like I'm looking forward to speed work, whereas before I was dreading having to put any kind of, you know, fast effort into it. And I think part of that is also just your brain will tell you what your body needs. And when you lack motivation just means that you're training too hard. Um, and so I feel like that's, that's one of the biggest differences. And I'm always looking forward to a training session. I'm not sitting at a trailhead in a car for like an hour. <laughs> just like trying to make myself go run. Um, yeah. You used to make those posts a lot and they were always funny and humanizing, but you'd say when you sit in the, the at the trailhead longer than it took you to get yeah. to the trail or something <laughs> like that. And I'd always laugh. Like, oh, Rhea, we've all been there. But then you start to look back and notice that that correlated to a lot of trends and yeah. maybe it wasn't so cute and humorous. Maybe it was a, that first sign of if I'm dreading getting out of the car, should I be running? <laughs> yeah. What What am I, what, what is leading up to this? And yeah. so it's interesting to hear you say that exact piece that I used to sit at the trailhead for 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes before I'd convince myself to move. 
Yeah. What do you do when that happens? I got a, I got two athletes in mind right now that do that. And sometimes they turn around and drive back and push it off and run later that day or sometimes don't feel bad about themselves. What do you do when you go drive to the trailhead and you sit in your car and you're like, I don't want to go. What should a person do in that situation, Rhea? Um, when I, I very rarely have those days now, but it's sometimes, you know, you just told you. I go out of the car and start walking. Um, so I don't put a run on my to-do list. I just put a walk on my to-do list. And usually when I walk far enough away from the car, <laughs> I start jogging. And then when I warm up, it starts feeling good. Um, I never had happened to me that it wouldn't start feeling good. But like what I am hope I'm able to do is that if you warm up and you still don't feel good, turn around. Because <laughs> that's when your body is really telling you you shouldn't be doing this. It's not going to get better if it hasn't gotten better in 10 minutes. Um, but again, I'm very good at telling that to my athletes. <laughs> I don't know if I'm so good at telling that to myself or if I would actually follow through with it. We talk about that a lot as coaches. We uh, we can give the best advice in the yes. world. <laughs> and it's the right advice that we fully believe in. But when it comes to taking your own advice sometimes, that's why it's important. Like they say, you know, even coaches need coaches. Yeah. And here you are, right? So makes sense. Bracken, what do you want to dive into next? I got a few things. World record attempt. <laughs> we have a world record holder on the show, ladies Not and gentlemen. Not anymore. It's, it's, no. it's, it's North American. It was broken a week later um, in Europe. But um, with a little caveat, I was at 8,000 feet and she was at 4,000 feet. So I feel like it's a slightly different effort. Um, but yeah, so uh, North American. <laughs> You are the world imperial distance record holder. <laughs> they can have the metric distance all they want. There so North go. American <laughs> record holder for most vertical feet gained in 24 hours on the skis. Yeah. First of all, that's that's a niche. That's a niche record right there. <laughs> but our whole sport is a sport of niche records. So tell me how that came on your radar and what excited you about that. Um, yeah, so lately I've really gotten into schema. Um, it's a really fun way to do winter here because there's a lot of snow and, um, you know, kind of like going with schema for people. Yeah. So schema is you put skins on the bottom of your skis, um, which lets you glide forward, but not backwards. And you release your heel. It's like special bindings and you walk uphill on skis. And then when you get to the top, you take the skins off of your skis, you clip in the heel. And now it's just the same as you were having a downhill ski on and then you ski downhill and at the bottom you repeat and you go back up. And so there's races, which are usually, you know, two to six hours long, sometimes an hour long where you just kind of go up and down. And like, sometimes you put your skis in your backpack and you walk up in your ski boots. Sometimes it starts on the pavement and you run on the pavement in ski boots with skis on your backpack. Um, so it's just a really fun way to cross train in the summer, in the winter because the you know aerobic engine and the muscles that you need going uphill translate very well to running uphill, but you kind of eliminate the pounding of going downhill. Um, so when I came off of that, you know, this winter sometimes I just didn't run all week. Um, transition to running is very very smooth. Um, you know, downhill you kind of have to you know reteach your joints and tendons to take the impact, but everything else is there and you're kind of fresh and. Um, rejuvenated from the lack of pounding through the winter. Um, so I was really looking forward to the racing season for that because I've been kind of training at it and, you know, figuring out what the best gear is. And I finally felt like I could be good at it this year. And then at the start of the season, it seemed like none of the races were going to happen um, because of COVID. And um, I was kind of looking for, you know, a challenge that, 
couldn't be canceled. Um, and then my friend suggested for some reason to just go for fun um, for six hours between 2 a.m. until the lift starts spinning because a lot of the time you do a lot of the times you do that at a ski resort and they don't let you doing doing it while they're open. So you have to be doing it before 8:30 or like after four. So she was just like, let's just go for six hours during the night. And I was like, that sounds great. And I managed to get 14,000 feet in six hours. Um, and I've always kind of been eyeing that record because I knew that 24 hours is something I'm really good at and really enjoy it. But it always just seemed out of reach. Um, but then when what, I, is the, what was the, the old record? It was 50,000, um, which averages about 2,100 per hour. Um, and getting so two Everest, basically, just basically. under two Everest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so getting 14,000 feet in six hours was well above that pace. And I felt good the whole time, even though I was doing it in the middle of the night and it was zero Fahrenheit outside, um, which, you know, you have to put a jacket on for the down and you have to take it off for the up. And um, there's a lot of issues that come with these cold temperatures. So I was like, hmm, maybe like that is within reach. And so I texted my coach and I was like, I have this great idea. Let's do the 24 hour like world record attempt. And he texts me back and he's like, how about we start with something a little smaller? How about Everesting? And then I was like, okay, well, fine. I'll look that up. So I like tried to look up Everesting record on skis. And when you look that up, all that comes up is actual Everesting on skis. <laughs> so I was like, well, nobody's doing that. Like, I don't think it's very competitive. Like, I'm not interested in that. Like, how about if I promise that, like, I will park my van in the mountains whenever you ask me to. I can be in the mountains 24-7 all the time. Um, and I'll take everything else as a B or a C event. And let's just focus on this. And so he was like, okay, well, if you really want to do it, let's do it. And so in January, we kind of changed everything from focusing on potential races that may or may not happen um, to focusing on this 24-hour attempt, which... Um, it was up to me to be executed. So I knew it couldn't be canceled. And it was a very firm objective goal, um, which is something that I felt like I needed after a year of cancellations. Two things. First of all, Everestine for the, the general population out there is gaining the amount of vertical feet that it would take to get up Everest in whatever modality you want. Atkins did a uh, bike Everest day. and I think he did it on foot too. He did it on foot as well. And I think he did it on skis as well. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> no. But anyways, going going the height of Mount Everest, however you want. Some people do it on a treadmill. But then second thing is, did you then do that? You took your van, parked it in the mountains and went all in on this? Yeah, quite a bit. Um, I, you know, I was still, because we have an upright room in Denver with my boyfriend. Um, but we spent a lot of times in the mountains in the winter anyway, because we were both skiers. Um, so I... Basically, that was my focus, um, committed to it 100% from when I decided to do it on January 20th until we did it in April. Um, the good thing about it is to train for it, you just need to be on your skis a lot. And um, I love backcountry. And to do backcountry, you usually have a little bit beefier skis, which are a lot heavier. Um, so that's actually really great training for it, too. So again, it didn't really feel like a sacrifice because I was doing whatever I wanted to do anyway. Now I could just justify doing it for longer. Um, so I had fun training for it. <laughs> Anything Killian Journey does, I'm, I can get on board with. And that's how he spends a lot of his year. Yeah. Did you run it all during that time just to keep some economy? Or were you, what I'm getting at is basically, did you run during that time? Were you all schemo? Because here we are in what, 
April and you're saying your running's feeling is good or better than ever. Yeah. So, and you weren't even doing that much running then, I assume. Um, none of my workouts were running. I did every now and then I did like a recovery run, um, but it was between like four and six miles. Um, anything longer was on skis. So no speed work running. All the speed work was on skis. Um, I biked still, um, but again, also more for recovery. All of my focus sessions were on skis during that time. It seems to me that the most difficult part about competing schema or something for a longer duration is managing the dichotomy between working hard and sweating on the way up and then freezing going down the mountain back and forth, back and forth for hours. And you're someone who self is self-proclaimed struggles with elements and with gear. So what was that process like for you? Luckily on skis, um, you're going up for about 45 minutes and then you go down for a minute. Um, so <laughs> especially if you straight line it, <laughs> it's over very quickly. Um, so I just dealt with it. Um, I got cold on the down, but I knew that within like two to three minutes of going up, I would feel warm again. Um, so in that sense, you always know you can work hard enough to bring your core temperature you know, to like comfortable, um, which is different than like in a Spartan race, if you go through a dunk wall and then after that you have very technical off, you know, off trail running, you can't work hard enough to bring the core temperature high enough to feel warm. Um, so in a way it's more predictable in schema, you know, after okay. every downhill, there's going to be an uphill <laughs> to warm up or you're done and you just put a puffy on. <laughs> so take us through race day and night. Yeah. Um, I was actually planning on starting Saturday at noon and going until Sunday at noon, um, something that I'm used to. <laughs> and I was like, I'll just do that because I know that works. Um, but then it was beautiful weather, except Saturday night was supposed to be a blizzard dropping 11 inches. And then Sunday, it was supposed to snow all day. Um, and in those kind of conditions, I knew the world record was out of reach um, because at night in a blizzard, you can't see where you're going. Um, light is reflecting off of the snowflakes and you can't see anything. And then on the down, skiing in deep snow, it bumps up and you have to work very, very hard. And so by the time you get down, first of all, you're losing a lot of time. Um, and then second of all, like your muscles are working very hard. Um, so on Tuesday, I decided to move the record attempt from Saturday noon to Friday. Um, my boyfriend, who was supposed to crew for me, wasn't flying in because he was on a work trip until Friday evening. So I like had to call my friends and be like, hey, any chance you guys could take Friday off and come a little early? <laughs> um, and I only had one boot because the other boot was sent to Dinafit um, to mount another ski. So I like called my friend from Dinafit and be like, hey, can you make it on Friday? Because I kind of need the other boot to start early. Um, so it was very like non-ideal conditions that day, that week, because that was like kind of stressing me out and everything. Um, but I, I worked with a sports psychologist, Graham, um, that Lindsay and Ryan actually work with too. And so when I was freaking out, I just called him and we chatted and um, he kind of reminded me that I'm just there to do whatever I can. And if I can't do my ultimate best because of conditions, that just that's just what it is. Um, so in a way, like I was more at peace with it because I kind of went from like, I need to get that many vertical feet per hour and I need to do this and this and that to like reminding myself, I just need to do my best. Um, and so on Friday, when my friend from Dinafit arrived, 
it was just the two of us. So we set up the aid station and then my friends arrived. And then when everybody was there, I was like, I guess I'll put my ski suit now and ski boots and skis and get going. And I started at exactly four o'clock, which is when the lifts stop running. Um, and I was by myself until about 9 p.m. Um, I went way too hard on the first couple laps. Um, I think my previous record for that slope was 35 minutes to the top and I did it in 28 on the first round and it felt easy. <laughs> um, so I had a lot of adrenaline there. Um, but then exactly I, how you want to start out. Exactly, right? <laughs> how did you pick your slope? I, I, like picking, did you sink the same thing up down for yeah. 24 hours? Cause that's the most effective. How do you pick the right the right slope, the right climb? How do you decide? Yeah, I was actually debating a lot between doing it in Montana or doing it in Colorado because in Montana, the bases of ski resorts are at 4,000 feet, uh, which in retrospect probably would have been a smart idea. Um, but none of my friends would be able to come to Montana. So I kind of decided to stay in Colorado for that purpose. And then I just looked for the ski resorts that had the lowest base. Um, so Aspen area was best for that. Um, cause when you're, you know, like 8,000 feet versus 10,000 feet starting point, it makes a big difference. Um, and then I wanted to find something that was, um, pretty consistent grades, but pretty steep. So for skis between 15 and 20% grade is ideal. Um, so the slope I was on gained 1700 feet in about 1.3 miles, which is pretty perfect because it's steep enough that it's efficient, but it's not so steep that it destroys your calves, um, and then Aspen is just a very friendly resort to uphillers. Um, where I was at, they already allow 24-7 uphill access. Um, so in that way, I didn't really require a special permission to do it. Um, and the ski patrol was very nice to us. So they let us use the warming hut at the bottom to use for restroom and to use as an aid station. And for people who were helping me, they could hang out inside. Um, and they didn't have to be outside all the time. And the whole resort is groomed. So that was another big thing is I wanted it groomed um, because it's just less effort. So every downhill I did, I didn't do a single turn. I just stood straight on my skis and straight lined it. That way it was like pure recovery. I didn't have to do anything. Um, and when it's groomed, you know, like you're not gonna crash. Um, and there were a variety of lines I could take to the top. So it wasn't just that one run the whole time. Um, so it was a little bit, less mentally challenging because I was like, I'll go left this time. I'll go right. <laughs> this is so interesting. So you, so a lot of homework goes into picking your, yeah. your line, obviously. And so you were actually at a ski resort going like in the middle of the day up that ski hill while skiers are going down. Yeah. So you're around people this whole time. Yeah. And then skiing down with the masses in quotes and then turning around, going right back up. So this was at a resort. It was at a resort. Yeah. Um, it wasn't super crowded, so it wasn't like I didn't have to dodge people at all. Um, it was enough people that I didn't feel alone. And after, you know, like after 9 p.m., I basically had pacers the whole time. So every time there was somebody coming up with me um, and at the top, when I took the skins off of the skis, you usually need to fold them to fit in your jacket. I just gave them to my pacer. Um, at the bottom, I didn't have to take my skis off and put skins on. I had another set of skis that I just stepped out and then stepped into another set of skis and just kept going. So my standing time in 24 hours was just 23 minutes, um, which is something I've learned from, you know, Tough Mudder and Spartan Ultra is that it's transition time matters. So anytime you're not moving, you're standing still, you're losing time. Um, so that was my goal. 24 hours of racing, you were not moving for 23 minutes. Yes. <laughs> 
bathroom breaks and everything. What did those 23 minutes look like? Um, well, it was like, I had to go poop once. I had to go pee once. Um, so that took some time. And then you peed one time in 24 hours. Yeah, probably didn't drink enough. <laughs> what? Maybe you were just at peak efficiency. Maybe. <laughs> I was using exactly the right amount of it in my body. Um, I never felt thirsty though. So I felt like I wasn't necessary. Well, I was dehydrated because my pee was orange, but um, not to the point that I think it impacted me. Um, and then for a few laps, I didn't have basers. So I had to fold my own skins at the top, which, you know, takes about 30, 30 seconds. Um, so that kind of compounds. And then, you know, like had to grab an energy gel every now and then I ate ramen a couple of times. So that slowed me down a little bit, but overall it was basically perfectly executed other than going to sea level. I don't think there's anything else I could have done better to gain more feet. Wow. Okay, I want to know about pacing and I want to know about fueling. Yeah. So pick your poison and start. Um, I'll start with pacing. There was none of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I basically just, I wore a heart rate strap and I tried to stay in, you know, zone two, basically. I didn't want to go into above um, zone two at all. I Which feel, is what for you? Um, I actually have really hard heart rate. So zone two starts at 165. Zone three starts at 165 for me. Um, so my max heart rate, my threshold is like, I did like four mile time trial and it was like 183 for the whole time. <laughs> um, so my threshold is 183. Um, my zone four starts at 174. So pretty high up. Um, part of that, I think is just that I'm at high altitude. So my heart rate is a little bit higher because of that. And then part of it, I don't know, it's just high. <laughs> um, I failed miserably at that on the first two laps. I was basically a threshold the whole time, but it didn't feel that way. And I was just too excited to do anything about it. Um, Were you checking on it or going by field that first lap? I was going by field. And then I looked back and I was like, well, that was not as planned. Um, Did that cost you feet down the line? I don't think so. Um, I always felt pretty strong. I kind of slowed down. My first lap was 28 and then it kind of hovered around 30 minutes. Um, about 12 hours in, it kind of slowed down to 40 minutes and then it stayed at 40 minutes per lap until the very end, like when I broke the world record is when it became really mentally hard. I knew that there were people going after me, so I knew I had to keep pushing, but it just became extremely difficult. And so I slowed down to 50 minutes per lap um, for the last two hours. Um, but when I was doing training laps, it was usually you know around 35 minutes per lap. So I felt like the 40 minutes per lap was pretty good for keeping it for 24 hours. Um, so yeah, I just tried to basically go at a rate that felt sustainable. Um, I constantly checked in with me and I was like, is this doing the best that I can? And so when I tried to speed up a little bit, I immediately felt that that was not sustainable. So I slowed back down to whatever it felt like I could keep going. Um, the goal was to you know work hard, but not work so hard that I would bonk. Um, and I felt like I achieved that. And with the pacers with me, they weren't really so much as pacing me in that strict sense they were more just there to talk to me I didn't really talk I just kind of listened to their stories and to you know grab my gear at the top um and then they would ski down and they would catch up with me and go for a few more laps um and it was actually really cool because for the last few hours basically the entire schema community that lives in the area came out um including some people I really look up to um, so it was really cool. And so I was like, sorry, guys, I'm going to be really slow. <laughs> so 
so they went ahead and then they waited for me and then they went ahead and waited for me um so it was it was just it was really really incredible that is I mean, that you can't replicate that. Even if you do it again, that first time's always going to yeah. stand alone. But fueling, going in, what was your fueling plan? Um, so I've learned from like the toughest matter and other things that I've done that the same thing never works for me. So like one year, like rice worked really good. And then the next year was oatmeal. Um, so I kind of wasn't sure what was going to work for um, the schema part. So I just kind of had enough calories in every kind of food that I could think of. So I had you know, enough calories for 24 hours and energy gels. Then I had like quesadillas, I had crepes, I had just like plain rice. I made like 10 pounds of mashed potatoes the day before. I just had so much variety. I was eating leftovers for literally a week. Um, in the end, I ended up eating just energy gels and ramen. Um, for some reason, during those 24 hours, I couldn't process anything solid. Um, one time I asked for a Nutella crepe and it literally took me the entire ascent to finish it because I couldn't chew it down and swallow it. Um, so I just stuck to spring energy gels and in the night when I got really cold on a few laps, I like chugged a bowl of ramen at the bottom. Um, but yeah, everything else was just left for leftovers and my crew to eat. <laughs> Did you season the ramen or keep the seasoning packet out of it? Uh, I seasoned it. Um, I had the full thing. I actually have a pretty good stomach, so I can eat basically whatever I want, as long as I can actually eat it. But I tend to not really get stomach issues um, very much from any kind of food that I eat. That might be why you didn't pee at all. You had all that sodium in you. For Probably. Great ramen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great ramen packet. You strike that perfect balance. <laughs> what flavor? Uh, gosh, I don't know. A dollar one. <laughs> I think it was the dollar flavor. I think it was chicken. I don't know. Yeah. So what was your goal then? How many calories per hour? Or were you just gonna go off whatever you could take in? I tried to do two to three hundred and it ended up being pretty perfect with about a forty minute lap. Um, because I would get like a you know, a two hundred calorie energy gel every lap. Um so it ended up being about like six hundred every two hours. So three hundred per hour is basically what I on average got in. Um I've never felt hungry, so I, it was just enough, and I never had any stomach issues, so it wasn't too much. So I did pretty well with that. <laughs> That's a great reminder because that two to three hundred per hour rule is pretty general for the population, and that's a good number to start with for an ultra event. But there are people who I think overfuel for two to three hour races, trying to hit three hundred an hour. And you proved, that, I mean, obviously you're a different machine than other people might be, but you proved that you could hold two to 300 for 24. Yeah. And that, that's a good reminder that sometimes less is more because you don't run into as many issues. Yeah. And I made that mistake of just eating too much and then you get like really horrible stomach issues, um, mm -hmm. especially if you do too many carbs, um, they can really get processed by the gut. Um, and then you end up pooping your pants in a wetsuit, which is not something I would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should try it once. Yeah. And then you don't want to repeat that. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps you warm, I guess. Did, did you ever did you ever have any uh like I mean 23 minutes of stagnancy is incredible. And none of that was occupied with a I can't do this, poor me, mental breakdown. None of those 23 minutes came with like lapses in your psyche. No, I actually felt I had like a low moment around midnight. But the, it was because the heart rate trap was constricting my breathing. So it was very hard to breathe and I couldn't figure out why. Um, and then I took that off and then I had a great time for the rest of the time, um, which, you know, like when I was looking back, like 
a week later when my record got broken, it was like, maybe I didn't push hard enough. Um, but I feel like whenever I look back to my 24 hour attempts, I always, I think I, I do whatever I can. And I'm just lucky enough that my body is really good at going for 24 hours without going in a mentally low point or bonking or anything like that. Um, and you know, whenever I felt low on energy, I would, you know, take a caffeine pill. Um, so I took a caffeine pill every four hours, starting at about eight to 10 hours, um, and that, that helped a lot. I didn't take any caffeine with anything else because I like to keep it separate so I can monitor it pretty well. Um, but it definitely provided a boost. And what, um, what if you had to describe, you've done a number of 24-hour events now. You've done like the World's Toughest. You've done Spartan Ultra. You've done this. Where does this effort rank as far as exertion and diff- compared to your other 24-hour efforts? It was very, very hard physically um, because when you're running, um, there's always downhill sections. So there's always times when you're working less hard. Um, For the ski, the uphill takes, you know, around 40 minutes and the downhill consistently took one minute. So for every 40 minutes of work, you get one minute of break. So towards the end of it, I was feeling so incredibly sore. I was feeling as sore as I usually feel a couple of days after a 24 hour run, but it was in the attempt already. (laughs) So I think physically it was probably the hardest of all. Um, just because you get no break. Um, I think the running events hurt a lot more afterwards. Your ankles are destroyed. Your knees are destroyed. You know, you can't walk for about a week. Um, I was able to, you know, jog and spin a few days later because it was, everything was just muscular. Um, it wasn't really skeletal and joints weren't, weren't hurting. Um, but I feel like effort-wise, they're all about the same. And I feel like that's because for these things, it's not so much what you're doing, but if you're doing it as hard as you can, it's going to be equally difficult, um, you know, mentally and, you know, overall physical exertion. Mm. That, yeah, it's wild because you don't have the pounding, but yeah. you do the same exact motion the entire time. My my glutes and hamstrings were on fire and the, the slope was a little bit off camber, so... <laughs> My left, like inner thigh, was very, very sore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, twenty-four hours of the same slight off camber would. I mean, it, it's amazing you didn't cramp or go into real, yeah, real death there. I've never actually cramped in my life ever, so I think <laughs> I'm like genetically lucky. Better knock on wood. Do you ever experience this? Is a something I thought you I cramped think- your calves and that. Well, it wasn't really runs. a cramp. They just kind of got really tight. So it wasn't like, you know, the kind of cramps that like comes and goes. It just got rock solid. Um, so I don't know, for persistent cramp, if, if that's the same thing. You got a calf pump. Calf pump, yes. <laughs> trying to call her bluff, aren't you, Bracken? I, I, I just, yes, I want her to cramp. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. It's not too much to ask for. <laughs> Do you ever experience, because uh, you're kind of the queen of the uh, the long distance events, and there's always this big lead up, right? The focus, the training, the big lead up, and then the, you know, the exhilaration of the event. But nobody ever talks about what happens after the event. Do you ever experience like the in the dumps, what's next feeling? Or are you, you know, the ultimate high typically is followed with the ultimate low, isn't it? And so do you ever experience that? And if you do, how do you navigate it? Yeah, every time. Um, I feel like every time after I do a big thing like that, I'm, I don't really know if depressed is the right word for it, but the next week really sucks. 
Um, (laughs) mostly because I'm usually very tired and very sore and any kind of movement, which is, you know, what I rely on for, um, feeling good every day is just, it's impossible. Um, and then I'm also just emotionally a wreck. (laughs) I get whenever I'm really tired, you know, I'm really irritable. Uh, I get really upset at like small things that people around me do. Um, I want to do more, but I can't because I'm tired and I know I shouldn't. So then I'm annoyed at myself for even wanting to. Um, and I feel like this one was especially hard um, because I knew that there was somebody else going a week later. And so the week that I had after to really enjoy it, I was just in such a bad mood <laughs> the whole time that I really couldn't enjoy my achievements. And then around Friday and Saturday, I started feeling bad. And I was like, okay, I feel good about this now. And then it got taken. Um, so, you know, like I'm, I knew that my record was going to fall and I knew that there was a potential she was going to break it. Um, and I'm not at all like, you know, upset or anything that the record fell. Um, but I felt like I kind of missed on that part of enjoying it because it was so quick. Um, and actually, I was also like, after every 24 hour world stuff is mother and, after Spartan Ultra, then next week, I'm usually not a very happy person. <laughs> it's definitely not like, you know, people are like, oh, go enjoy this. Like the first week, I never do. Um, I'm I'm really happy about what I achieved, like objectively, but your body is just such a hormonal wreck that you can't actually feel that until you recover. I just feel like it, most people experience this and I don't know if it's always talked about necessarily. And it seems so consistent across the board that after something big, the, the fall, you know, hurts a bit. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually glad you're human that way. <laughs> uh, so if you don't cramp, at least she feels like shit. I do feel like shit. <laughs> we have that at least. Thank goodness. Huh? Now the, those moments seem to be the moments after a training block ends during a recovery week, after a big effort where the old demons pop up. Yeah. And obviously some demons followed you from Slovenia to the US and you you it seems like you worked hard towards getting a handle on the eating disorder and the body image but are these the times when you fight it the hardest that you relapse or that you have your struggles? Actually, this was the first time where I celebrated my effort with ice cream. <laughs> um wow. I, that was actually one thing I was pretty proud of. Even though it was a very hard week, I never felt like it led to me wanting to restrict food. Um, so that was probably the biggest victory for me. Um, for the first time? For the first time. After Eco Challenge in Fiji, which was seven days of nonstop racing with very limited fueling, um, everybody went and had like this chocolate fudge brownie with ice cream. And I like was like, well, I'm not training right now very hard, so I can't have that. Um, so this was yeah. the first time where I actually allowed myself to, you know, celebrate with food, um, which fantastic. Felt, felt really, really good. So mm-hmm. I feel like for me, I struggled the most with that the weeks leading to it, um, because I'm also working out less. And so those thoughts pop back up. Um, but I feel like I don't, it feels like I don't deserve it because I'm, it's, I haven't done the thing yet. Um, so those are the times where I really have to. Um, work on myself to, you know, be like, no, like, this is what you need to be able to do it. So go have ice cream, (laughs) go have, you know, chocolate, go Mm -hmm. have this full meal. Um, And those are probably the hardest time. But um, I feel like just like I'm, as I'm stubborn with, you know, running 90 miles a week when I shouldn't be, 
Um, I feel like the stubbornness kind of relates to the eating disorder world as well. And ever since I decided I'm not purging anymore, um, March of 2000, what was it, 20? Um, I haven't done it a single time. And I've like made myself eat cookies when I was like, I really want a cookie, but I really don't think I should. Um, I've been able to like be like, no, like no food is bad food. You should have that because it's good for your mental health. Um, so yeah, I've it's been a hard hard road, but I feel like I'm lucky in a way where I'm just so stubborn <laughs> that I'm more stubborn than myself. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's. I think you mentioned it earlier, but it's not something that it's not like uh, something you beat and leaves. Yeah. It stays there, knocking on the door from time to time, or always, or yeah, you know, and that's that's that constant battle. So you have a sports psychologist that you work with. Yeah, um, not like on a regular basis, but whenever yeah. I'm struggling, I like ring him up and he's down to meet with me <laughs> on a moment's notice. Your situation is shared by many athletes, many endurance athletes in particular. So what are those strategies without giving away all of what he does with you um, that you use race week or recovery week or deload week that help you through those low patches? Um, so we mostly talk usually about racing and like how to do my best. Um, and one of my favorite things that we've worked on together is I always draw this picture before a race where in the right corner, it's how I want to race. Um, and then in the left bottom corner is what might happen or like, what am I dealing with and what might happen? That's not going to make me race the when I want to race. And then in between, I write how I think I'm going to get there. So like, if I'm like, if I start focusing too much on numbers, I don't want to race by numbers, I want to race by effort. How am I going to shift my um, perspective? or like my attitude that I'm gonna get to racing the way I wanna race. And so having all of those drawn out and written out beforehand, it's so much easier to draw on it in the race time because you know it takes me a while to come up with these and you're not gonna be doing that while you're racing because your brain is in 10,000 other spots, but because you've already thought about it, it's really easy to recall it. Um, so that's probably one of my favorite things that we've come up together um and then the rest is he basically just asked me why i'm nervous why i'm feeling the way i'm feeling um and then we talk about it and then usually it like reframes my mind to where it puts me up for success um in the best way possible would you call that visualization in a sense visualizing scenarios and how to react yeah or is it different than that that's actually a really good way to put it um it's kind of like foreseeing what could possibly go wrong and coming up with those solutions ahead of time. Um, so sort of like a problem visualization, not necessarily focused on the physical effort, but um, more of like the mental part of it, which, you know, is visual visualization as well. There's some power to acknowledging the weaknesses and the doubts yeah. and getting them out there and, and, and putting them away. Yeah. When we all know we don't, we don't quite think our best when our heart rate's up there, do <laughs> Definitely we? Definitely not. So, <laughs> conquering that ahead of time is super valuable. I, um, I have two main things I want to ask you about still. And one is just a curiosity based on your accomplishments, uh, which are many, especially in the endurance side of things. Of all the things that you've done up to this date, and I know you have plenty of future plans only being 29, which I had no idea. Um, what are you most proud of and why that you've done to date so far? Um, I think probably it is the 24-hour schema world record, huh? uh, export record. Um, and the reason it being not just because it's a 
something, you know, that I didn't think I could do and I did. I was probably the most scared of that ever um, because it was the first thing that I kind of told people about. When I did my 24-hour OCR for the first time, nobody knew who I was in that in the Tough Mudder world. So I was allowed to fail and nobody would notice. Um, this, you know, people were watching and my sponsors, you know, gave me gear for it and they were there. And so I felt like I wasn't, it was going to be more public if I fail. <laughs> and that was very scary. And I also just had no idea if I could do it because I've never been in ski boots for that long period of time. Um, so it was very scary and it was something that I didn't know if I could, but in a way it was almost a celebration of overcoming the eating disorders because when I, you know, stopped purging in 2020, um, at that point I've, I've lived with them for 20 years in one shape or another. And I was very convinced that I couldn't be the athlete I was, um, if I didn't eat the way I did. So in my mind, you know, not eating desserts and um, eating the way I did is what made me good. And so it was very scary to let go of that because it was, I had no idea if I could still be an athlete eating like a normal person. And when mm -hmm. I first, when I first started eating normally and I didn't purge, I gained a lot of weight and anything that involved defeating gravity became very, very difficult. So for a few months, I was very slow running. I didn't really feel very fit and I didn't really feel like a pro athlete for a long time. Um, so I was actually quite glad that there weren't any races where I had to measure myself against others or against my previous achievements. And so in a way, doing something that defeats gravity for 24 hours was the complete defeat of that mindset. Um, so it, it, it holds more than just the record itself. It holds a lot of what I lived with for a very long time. And it's kind of like a first step into knowing that I can probably be a much better athlete than what I was while also enjoying cookies and ice cream and all the social activities that come with food and that are taken away from you when you restrict it. That just gave me the chills. What a triumphant event. <laughs> yeah, that is fantastic. I love hearing that. And again, we keep saying this is a great reminder to people, but it's a great reminder of the difference between causation and correlation. Yeah. Like, were you a great athlete because you didn't eat dessert or were you a great athlete while also not eating dessert? And that is such a powerful pairing in your mind that while I was doing A, B happened. And now if I don't do A, B will never happen for me ever again. We link those pieces that sometimes are linked and sometimes are just in the same room. And it's really hard to unlink those. Yeah. Um, and it takes like, I mean, for me, it took a global pandemic to face it. Um, so it really like makes you wonder how, how can we redefine the success in sports where people aren't compelled to link those two together? You're in a position to change that. <laughs> where did yours, where did yours come from ultimately? Who did you hear talking about it? coaches yeah um coaches and other athletes so i feel like yeah. when other athletes started talking about it it was a lot easier for me to confront mine um so that's why i try and talk about it a lot because hopefully other people can confront theirs yeah. coaches start it athletes themselves amongst each other can defeat it yeah it's, it's a two-way street where the coaches have to stop giving that information out and the athletes have to all speak up about their experiences with it yeah and that's why I applaud you. I applaud Amelia. I applaud Morgan, Bailey, you know, everyone who's come on here and talk about these things. It's because 
every single person who mentions it, there's a dozen others who think, oh, thank goodness it's not just me and there's hope. And then hopefully everyone who mentions it, their coach or some other coach hears it and goes, I cannot and will not do that ever again. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure gymnastics world is changing anytime soon, but hopefully we can make an endurance difference in the endurance world. <laughs> if if there was anything good to come out of the Larry Nasser situation is yeah. that there is finally a spotlight on the health side of coaching in gymnastics. Yeah. And it's going to be a long, slow trickle down. But if eyes are on the sport and athletes are now speaking up about misconduct of a physical or sexual nature, mental and food is next in line. Yeah. I want to move um, to what's next for Rhea Coble. Um, what uh, we talked about your past, we talked about the things you did. We did a dang good job. That was super interesting. What what is Rhea Coble still yet to do? What's on your radar? What are we looking at this year? You said you got some speed in those legs, maybe yes. for the first time in a while. What are we doing with it all? Yeah. Um, well, at the moment, nothing. <laughs> My <laughs> next big thing. I'm actually going to be in Montana for the Spartan Ultra because I do want to do the Telluride 24 hours. So, um, gotta qualify. <laughs> So I'm doing that in Montana, but then after that, I'm doing a 300 mile adventure race in Oregon. Um, and I'm actually, it's going to be a very special team. So usually um, the adventure races are four person teams and the core requirement is one person to be of the opposite gender. It usually happens. It's three guys and one woman. Um, and, you know, like it's usually like the woman gives up their mandatory gear so that we'd have lighter load so we can travel faster. Um, so we're not really considered the strongest link <laughs> on the team. And for our team, we're flipping that ratio. So we have three women and one guy. And we're three pretty damn strong women. And we're hoping to podium. Um, again, like we have to race very, very smart. We have to cut down our weights because, you know, the pack to person ratio is going to be higher if the person weighs less. <laughs> um, so, and we always have to, like the part of the adventure racing is navigation. So if you are going in the wrong direction fast, you're just more lost. Um, so that's a big key. Um, our navigation has to be perfect. There's a lot of things we have to execute really, really well for that to happen. But I think we have a strong team and we have a really good chance of that. Um, so I'm really, really excited for that. And then after that, I was supposed to go to Europe again. Um, my, I tried to do this last year where I, no, no woman has ever done that before, um, to go to the lowest point of Slovenia, which is 120 feet below sea level, swim to the shore, bike to the mountains and summit the tallest mountain in under 24 hours. Um, the male record is, I think, 18 hours. Um, so I was kind of eyeing for that. Um, it looked like maybe this year it'll be possible, but now it's looking a little bit more questionable again. Um, so still debating whether or not this is happening. Um, and if it doesn't- What is that exactly? Wait, your swim, can you, can you yeah, outline that exactly again? You dive to the lowest point in the country, which is 120 feet below sea level. You, you dive like in the water yes. with gear um, to touch the bottom. I was going to free dive when I was planning that initially, um, but it requires a lot of training in Hawaii and that's just not possible with COVID. So I'm planning now doing it with scuba because that's a lot quicker um, to do. And then you swim to the shore, uh, which I think is about 300 yards. It's not very far. And then you ride your bike to the mountains, which is about 130 miles with 10,000 feet of gain. And then you climb the tallest mountain. So it's lowest to highest point in the country. 
and Slovenia is small enough, you can do that in a day. Um, so you don't think small, do you? <laughs> My goodness, what on earth are you getting yourself into? So that's one of the projects I'm super excited about, and it got canceled last year. I was hoping it would be possible this year, but it's looking rather questionable at the moment. Um, so it might be pushed to 2022. Um, that's such a great effort though that that is that's so unique yeah um i think it'd be really fun to do it and you know if somebody else does it before me it'll be nice because they'll they'll be a mark um so just depends when i can actually go there and you know like with the covid restrictions and everything you're traveling through multiple counties so it's like really hard to do it unless the country's open um so we kind of need to wait for that to happen but maybe with the vaccine things will open up um by the time i wanted to go there um and then for the rest of the summer, I just have a lot of like trail runs planned and mountain bike races and maybe going for some fastest known times around here. Um, but really my big goals are for next winter. Um, when I was little, I wanted to be a Olympian in gymnastics. Um, I maybe, you know, might be able to make it on the US national team for schemo. Um, so once the winter hits again, um, I think that will be my primary focus is just trying to make the team. Um, but we'll see where that goes. <laughs> where are these fast legs being used? I haven't heard anywhere. Oh, I'm doing the U.S. National Series races. So, oh, um, oh by the she, way, <laughs> she just brushes over that. Well, the thing is, like, I don't want to be focusing on that because I don't know if it's going to happen. I feel like while the sporting events are being announced, they're being canceled at about the same rate. and I just I don't like putting all of my chips in one basket and then being really disappointed when it doesn't happen. Um, so I'm working on my fast legs and I will put them to use if races happen. <laughs> Utah, Utah is the first race that I'm planning on doing. Um, that's part of the national series. And I'm thinking that one will probably happen. There's one thing I didn't hear in there that I expected to hear, which is you reclaiming your world record. Oh, um, I think for that, I just need to go to sea level. So but you will do it. Yeah, um, eventually. It's one of those things that it required a lot of mental, you know, stoke. And that takes a while to recover. Um, so right now, if I go, I know I wouldn't be able to do my 100%. Um, so I probably need a year or two <laughs> to go at it again. Um, so where is ideal where it's sea level and you have big mountains would you have to go alaska in the u.s or would you leave the u.s i probably do it in europe um montana is pretty good but the problem is that um it tends to in the winter it's too cold and in the summer it thaws during the day and then it freezes overnight and that's very slippery um so it's very hard because of that and then california just loses its snow by the time it's you know warm enough to do it um, so Europe is probably best for that. So I would have to, you know, it'd be a year when I would already be in Europe for the winter. And then I just add that on as a celebration of whatever I'm doing. <laughs> I have one last question, Kirk. Cool. You mentioned Dynafit earlier, and that's a, that's a brand most people I would say in the U S have never heard of. Um, it's more of a, an Alpine brand, but they have some mountain running shoes that they've come out with. Are you, are you running in their shoes? Yes. Um, How I, are they? so good. <laughs> I, for the longest time when I was, you know, perpetually injured, I was finding a shoe to solve my problems. And I like the problem actually wasn't the shoe, it was me. Um, but 
so like I was always looking for like super cushion and stuff. Now that I actually feel good, it's pretty nice because a lot of the shoes feel good. So I have a much broader shoe selection I can try on and actually feel good in. And they're um, Ultra 100 are my absolute favorite. They actually have an incredible grip on wet wood um, and they're super light and they just hug your foot, foot really well. Um, so I'm planning on running up slip walls in those and hopefully <laughs> having less trouble than I did before. <laughs> Yeah, they're four foot lockdown. I haven't been able to wear them yet, but seems to be really, really good. What would you compare them to in terms of the standard US shoes? What shoe are they most similar to? Oof, good question. Um, they're really light. They're lighter than anything I've ever tried before. Um, they hug the foot, foot very similar to the VJs, but they're wide. Um, so the problem I had with VJs is that I just have a really wide foot. Um, so they always felt like they were being a little smushed in that shoe. Um, and the Dinafit just gives them space, but at the same time, I'm not floating in them. Um, they're very similar, actually, to the Sauconis, um, at least the way they feel in my foot. But they have better grip and they're much lighter. Um, so, yeah. Okay. I, I know I, Johnny ran in a pair for a while as well, and they stayed on his foot when he descended. So I figured their lockdown was all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've actually, I tried them before. I like decided I wanted to partner with them because I wanted to make sure I liked the shoe before I was committed to the shoe. Um, and it was perfect. <laughs> and they're blue, which is my favorite color. At least one of their colors is blue. Your requirements that they fit your wide foot and blue. <laughs> well, the second one can be skipped if they fit really well. And their packs, you like their packs as well? Yeah. Um, everything they make is just super light. Um, which, you know, makes a big difference when you're going for 24 hours and, um, you know, moving fast in the mountains. My ski, um, the ski weight, I think, the ski and the binding weight, like 750 grams. And the ski boot that I had weighs 500 grams. <laughs> it was lighter than some of my shoes. It was, it's incredible. Well, I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> I like hearing about these, these non-US based brands because it's hard to get your hands on them. Yeah. I just want to know, I guess, what you got any cool adventures planned in the next, like, the rest of this week? Anything fun coming up for you, uh, like, immediately? Yeah, I think on um, every weekend I try and go ski something fun. Um, in Colorado, the snowpack is actually pretty dangerous avalanche-wise all winter. And then in spring, it settles down and you can actually do, like, fun, steep, steep things. Um, so usually I do that Saturday or Sunday. Um, and now in Montana coming up, I'm actually ramping up my running a little bit, so... Um, going on trails again for a little bit longer the other day of the weekend um but yeah that's it <laughs> sounds good to me do you have him do you have anybody just i, I know you know you're, you're doing the full-time athlete thing um just like to give a shout out to who's taking care of you and who's got your back all those things yeah um ascent has just been really good to me throughout the years um from when i they picked me up in 2017 they basically had my back through COVID and through, you know, my eating disorder recovery journey. And they're just always behind me when I decide to go do this other sport that they've never heard of. Um, so they're a great company um, and I love their products too. So um, it's one of those things when I limit, I meet my limits in the product allowance every month. <laughs> um, and then I also work with Dinafit now. Um, so I have really nice, really light gear. Um, and then Spring Energy. Um, they've also been really good to me from the start. Um, I have, you know, unlimited energy gels that sometimes is the only thing I can eat in the 24 hours. Um, so 
those are my main people. <laughs> cool. That's all I got. What do you got, Bracken? Just a thank you. Again, every time we have someone exceptional like this on with an exceptional story, I'm so thankful that you're willing to come on here, be open and honest, because these are the interviews that afterwards we get dozens of messages with people saying, thank you, that spoke to me, that hit me right where I'm at right now, or right where I've been for years, and I needed to hear that. So, Rhea, thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, I listen to your podcast a lot, so it's an honor to be on it. Oh, shucks. I didn't We're know. honored to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> all right well i'm sure you have an adventure to get to Rhea. so thank you thank you guys bye bye